So you might say, well, if it's just a handful of little Jews going into the kingdom, why are all of us Christians and all of the Christians over the last 2,000 years, everybody who was raptured, why are we all needed to rule and reign with Christ? And wouldn't we vastly outnumber those going into the millennial kingdom? Listen to this. It took from after the flood to 1867. It took that many years from flood to 1867 for the earth to reach a number of 1 billion in population. 1867, we were at 1 billion. Why? Because from the flood to 1867, the world had to deal with plagues, infant mortality, wars, etc. Not to mention the fact that God limited man's lifespan. Now those of you who did the Genesis study with us well over a year ago, you may recall that it's possible that the population of planet Earth, when the flood happened, was bigger than it is now. That there were actually more people on planet Earth in terms of billions than there are today. Why? Because people live incredibly long lifespans as we see in scripture. Eight, nine hundred years. How many babies can you make in nine hundred years? How many babies could a woman make if she could just be pregnant for a hundred years? My goodness. The, the propagation of humanity would be incredible. And here we are in this millennial kingdom. Well, let me go on. From 1867 to 1935, in 68 years, the population of Earth doubled. We went from 1 billion to 2 billion in 68 years. From 1935 to 1965, that was just 30 years, we added another billion. Earth's population jumped up to 3 billion, and that included World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam. For all of those world, world, world wars that were going on, we still added a billion people to the world's population. From 1965 to 1995, it doubled again to the Earth's current population of over 6 billion people. So when you live in a world that has the ability medically and otherwise for people to live a little bit longer, look how fast the population grows. And we're told right now that an additional 250,000 people are added to the earth every 24 hours. So by this time tomorrow, another 250,000 people will be alive on planet earth. Amazing. What about life during the perfect reign of Christ? Listen to what Isaiah says. He describes the millennial kingdom with these words. Isaiah 65, verse 20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. He says, for the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. What's he saying? He's using language to describe the length or the lifespan of people during the millennium. If someone dies at the age of 100, it'll be like sudden infant death syndrome. It'll be too quick. Too early. It won't make sense to people in the millennium. People will be living long, long periods of time during that millennial kingdom. Why? Because when you've got Jesus ruling and reigning in a perfect reign, there's absolute peace, so there's no war. I believe in the Bible indicates that Isaiah talks about how, how the world's going to be restored to almost Eden-like situation here. And so all the things that would bring about and cause death are severely diminished. Will there be death in the millennium? It appears there will be. But not, not for those who are very young. People will live out their ages. Isaiah goes on in Isaiah 65, 21. He says, They'll build houses and inhabit them. And they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And they will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. In other words, you're not going to work for anybody but yourself. You're not going to have to go serve someone else. Everybody will have plenty in and of themselves. 
And he says, They will not plant and another eat, for as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. So there will be childbirth during the millennial kingdom. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will be an amazing time as the lifetime of a tree. There are trees in the Garden of Gethsemane today. All of trees that you can look at that were here the night that Jesus prayed in the garden. 2,000 year old trees. That's twice the length of the millennium. The millennium, a period of 1,000 years. So is it likely that some will enter into the kingdom and live the entire thousand years of the millennial kingdom? Absolutely. Life will be long and wonderful at that point. Now, if a person lives to be a thousand years of age, in perfect health, we are talking lots of babies. Lots and lots of offspring, babies everywhere. Human beings, and remember again, you are no longer human at this point. You're divine to a degree. You're not divine like God is, but you're glorified. You're in your eternal body. You're in your, your he heavenly state, your heavenly body. I'm looking forward to that one. Perishable humanity, however, and don't miss this, perishable humanity will still have a sin nature. Jesus is ruling and reigning, but people still have a sin nature. There is still the ability to sin, however severely diminished, because Satan's not going to be deceiving anybody. So he's not running around throwing out ideas and drawing people into sin and luring and enticing. That's gone. Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem at the time. And so during that thousand years, it's going to be very hard to sin, but you can still do it right up here. There will still be that sin nature. And what are the wages of sin? Death. As long as there's sin, there will be death. Well, look at verse 4. Going on back to Revelation 20. Verse 4. <laughs> Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them who were on the thrones. Who do you think is sitting on the thrones? Luke chapter 22, verse 30. Jesus says the following to his apostles. We just read this verse a few minutes ago. You will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So we know for a fact that those sitting on the thrones are the apostles. That they will be seated on thrones and judgment is given to them. However, I believe there's a broader uh, indication here for this. The scripture also indicates that reigning and ruling will be overseen by those who take part in the first resurrection. Anyone who is a part of the first resurrection will rule and reign with Jesus during this time called the millennium. Okay, what's the first resurrection? Now, I'm giving you a lot of things to think about. I hope you're taking some notes on this and really process this tonight because it's important to know these things. There are two resurrections the Bible talks about very clearly. And there are two deaths. Two resurrections, two deaths. You need to understand these. The first resurrection is not a point in time. It's a process over time. The first resurrection. What does that mean? Who does that include? It started out, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26, started out with Jesus Christ, called by Paul the first fruits. He opened up the gateway to the first resurrection. He holds in his hands, remember, literally the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus is the first of many brothers who would be resurrected, the Bible tells us. Jesus Christ, the first fruits. So he started off the first resurrection. When he came back to the, from the dead on that glorious Sunday morning, boom, the first resurrection opened up and the likelihood of it began. Secondly, 
1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. The second group involved in this first resurrection is those who are dead in Christ and those alive in Christ at the time of the rapture. So it began with Jesus, it continues with the raptured church. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive at that time will be caught up with them to meet them together in the clouds, to meet Jesus there. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Third group of people that are a part of this first resurrection, Old Testament believers. This will be people like David. This will be people like Moses, Joshua, Joseph. Abraham, going all the way back, Old Testament faithful believers in God, those who trusted in God, they will come back as well to rule and reign part of this first resurrection after the tribulation, before the millennium. Okay, that's, that's when they come back. They don't go through the tribulation. They come back after the tribulation, before the millennium. Well, how do we know that they'll be raised up at this time? Because I don't see that in Revelation 20. So we go back to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. I'll read this to you. Tells us at that time Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. The angel is talking to Daniel. And he says, There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, after the time of distress, tribulation, at that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. But as for you, this is verse 13 of Daniel chapter 12, as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and, watch this, rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. The angel tells Daniel, you're going to die, Daniel, and a span of time is going to happen, but you are going to rise again, first resurrection. You're going to enter into that kingdom and enjoy that kingdom as one who rules and reigns with Jesus. You will receive your allotted portion at the end of the age. So it's after the tribulation. That's what we're told with Daniel. But we're also seeing that it's before the millennium. Why? Because the millennial kingdom fulfills the very Jewish promise of God's messianic kingdom on earth for Israel. Ezekiel 35 verse 25. They will live on the land that I gave my, to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, this is interesting, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant as opposed to a seven-year covenant. An everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now you might say, see Rick, it says forever. That's not a thousand years. Yeah, but from the beginning of the millennial kingdom on into forever, God's kingdom will reign. Even for the little uprising that happens after a thousand years that we'll get to in just a second. God will reign from that point forward and we will be with Jesus forever from that point forward. But it also mentioned that David, my servant, will be their prince. It's entirely likely, just based again on literal taking, taking the scriptures literally, that David himself <coughs> may serve kind of as a vice regent or maybe vice president to Jesus' reign. That King David will, will reign again or serve out of Jerusalem alongside Jesus. And that would be fascinating to see because today the tomb of David is supposedly in Jerusalem. You can go visit it. It would be kind of funny to see David visiting David's tomb. could be interesting. But the first resurrection now, it includes the raptured church. It includes Jesus. Did you have a question, Daphne? Adrian. 
Okay, alright. It includes the Old Testament believers raised up after the tribulation going into before the millennium. And then the fourth group, tribulation saints who are martyred in Christ are also part of the first resurrection. These saints of the tribulation will close out the first resurrection. The resurrection is for all those who died the first death, with the exception of the raptured church who was alive at the time, and who will not face the second death, and that's what you want. You want to be part of the first resurrection, because if you are part of the first resurrection, you will not face the second death. Am I confusing you at all here? Okay, think about this. You and I have very specific roles for the millennium, which I believe that we are working out in our lives today. Roles in the millennium, things that we will do. We will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. The role that we will have during the millennial kingdom, while there are humans on earth and the earth is being vastly repopulated, as Isaiah talks about, could very quickly be repopulated to massive numbers, we will rule and reign and our role will be the enforcement of righteousness. The enforcement of righteousness, showing people the right way, pointing them toward Jesus, helping in conflicts. We talked about conflicts this morning. Our responsibilities during the kingdom rule will, I believe and listen, depend on how we live our lives now. How we live our lives now will impact the roles that the Lord gives us in the kingdom. Why do I say that? Matthew 24, verse 45. Jesus, speaking in a parable, said, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master will put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Parable of the talents, Luke 19, 11-27. Same thing. To him who has been given much, even more will be given. As we live out our spiritual responsibilities here on earth, as we serve, as we love people, as we share the kingdom with people, that will impact how we serve during the millennial kingdom. That doesn't impact whether or not you're going to be saved. It doesn't impact whether or not you're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ in the millennial kingdom. But your role there is going to depend on your role here for the church today. And what you're doing, what we do, how we live, does impact that millennial kingdom and our function during that time. Now all of this raises an interesting question. Why does righteousness need to be enforced at all? If everything's perfect, Jesus is here, it's a great time. Remember what I said, as long as people are in the flesh, there's a sin nature. And as long as there's a sin nature, sin can happen. Think about this. People are going to grow up during the millennium and they're not going to know what it's like to be influenced by the devil. Wouldn't that be great? Can you imagine even just a free week off from the devil? We said several weeks ago that the devil doesn't take a day off. He never pauses. You know, his demonic hordes never step back and go, ah, let's just give him a break for a little while. Every moment of every day, it's Satan's intention to entice and to lure and to challenge us and to draw us into our sin nature. And we battle it constantly. We battle it just in our thoughts. It's amazing how quickly our minds can go to that place of sin. Imagine living in a world where Satan cannot whisper a thing. Where his demons are gone. Where the only rule and authority in the world is Jesus Christ. And there will be children born into that who will never have known the temptations of Satan. Who will never understand what that's like. But they will still have their human sin nature. That's still going to be a part of them, their ability to choose. And as much as we like to say the devil made me do it, it's not always the devil that made us do it, is it? Sometimes it's our very sin nature. 
and the millennium will reveal this. Look at verse 5. It tells us at this point... Did I skip, I, I skipped the whole part of verse 4. Let me go back and read this. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. I'm talking about tribulation saints here. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the third time Chilioi is mentioned. Third time a thousand years. And talking about the tribulation saints. So they're part of that, of that first resurrection. Now verse 5 tells us the rest of the dead, the rest of the dead, that is those not involved in the first resurrection, the rest of the dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And then he says this is the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? Those who are resurrected premillennially. Those who are resurrected from Jesus all the way up to the last person to lose their life in faith in Jesus during the tribulation, that's the first resurrection. Okay? That's the first one. The rest of the dead, though, don't come alive until the end of the thousand years is in what we will see the second resurrection. And that's the one you don't want to be part of. The rest of the dead. Who are the rest of the dead? Any and everyone who does not take part in the first resurrection. Any of the Old Testament people, anyone across all of history who died without faith in God, who rejected or rebelled against Jesus Christ, who never accepted Him as Lord and Savior. You might say, well, wait a minute, because there were people like Abraham who didn't accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. No, but they had faith in God. And remember Paul says, Romans 4, he credited Abraham because of that faith. He credited him with righteousness. He handed him a chip, as it were, that says, here's your pass, Abraham. Until Jesus dies, your faith counts. Your faith in me and your trust in me counts. And when Jesus dies, I will apply your faith to that death. Your faith in my grace will still save you. So that's, that's how Jesus, the cross, it's amazing, goes both forward and backward in time. And covers anyone who had faith in God. Those who die outside of faith, who reject the Lord, those are the rest of the dead. And they will not take part in the first resurrection. They will take part in the second resurrection. And where are they during the Millennial Kingdom? They remain in Hades. They remain in waiting, which is where they are right now. For when Jesus... Well, I'm not going to go there right now. Trust me on that. <laughs> I'll take questions later. But I love this quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. D.L. Moody once said the following. He said, He who is born once will die twice. He who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once. And I add to the end of that, if at all. In other words, if you're born once, in other words, just born in the flesh, you're going to face two deaths. You will face the physical death and the second death. You will face the spiritual death if you're only born once. But if you're born twice, born physically and also born of the Spirit, then you will only face one death and that's the physical death. And you might not face that if he comes before we die. And that's what we're all cheering for right now. John 11:25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. There is a blessed, a group of people who will never taste death. And they include guys like Enoch who just walked with God and he was no more. And that's where I want to be. And that's what we're praying and hoping for and looking for, the return of Jesus, the call of Jesus before we die, that we just got to be with God and we were no more. 
That's, that's what I want written about me. I want someone to put up a tombstone over an empty grave that says, Rick Crawford doesn't lie here because he was no more. <laughs> I'm shooting for that. So, Revelation 25, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now watch. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So all that explanation that we just went through in that, in that first part of the study is spoken of right there. Very clearly, we will reign with him. We will be his priests throughout the world. And that's going to be happening for a thousand years. And we're blessed to be part of the first resurrection. That's where we want to be. That's where we want friends and family to be. That's the urgency. Join us in the first resurrection. Because over these, the second death has no power. Now going on, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. One of the most confusing verses in all scripture. Because as we've seen, it amazes me that that we have this revelation of the heart of man at the very end of all things. Consider this, the lid of the abyss is removed. We've had a thousand years of perfect peace, the rule and reign of Jesus, that millennial kingdom. We have seen what it's like to live under the absolute dictatorship of Jesus Christ. The world will have experienced that. We haven't so far, it's been 6,000 years, we have never lived under the rule and absolute authority of Jesus Christ. Oh, we know he is the absolute ruler. But the world has never lived in that position with him reigning out of Jerusalem. It's going to happen. And for a thousand years, it will be absolutely perfect. There's no question of what life would be like. And for anyone who says, well, you know what, if I could just see Jesus right now, then I would believe. If he would just, you know, show himself to me, then I would believe. This debunks that myth right out. The lid of the abyss is removed. Satan comes railing out. He's flailing. After a thousand years in chains, he is ticked off and he is ready for war. And he is actually going to attempt one last time to overthrow Jesus. But he's going to overplay his hand one more time. Now, Gog and Magog here speak of Russia in prophetic history. So are you saying that this is Russia at the end of the millennium? No, I'm not. I'm saying that, that Gog and Magog, go back to Ezekiel, does speak of Russia. And as a matter of fact, and we'll get into this next Sunday a little bit, Gog and Magog, the war that Ezekiel 37-38-39 talks about, we may be on the front end of. We're watching what's happening in Israel right now. And Russia, Russia is funding Iran, funding Hezbollah. Russia is in bed with Iran to a certain degree right now. In fact, who was it that was just telling me about it? I think it was Spencer that Russian ships have actually now moved down to Syrian ports. So something's going on here. And the Bible indicates that there will be what's called the the Magog invasion, which is an invasion of a great country from the north against Israel. And it looks to be Russia. In fact, the the language in there, Tubal, is is, is used. And that's Tubal. That is a, a Russian term. So all of that may happen... 
teachers of the word are mixed on this. They're not all lined up. Some believe it's going to happen before the rapture, that, that the church actually will see the Magog invasion happen and then the rapture take place. Others say it will happen immediately after the rapture takes place. Why do we say that? Because we're told that once this Magog invasion is put down supernaturally by God, that all of the weapons used against Israel will burn for seven years. In other words, seven years as in the tribulation period. So that Magog invasion is going to be front end somewhere right before the tribulation. I'm getting a little ahead of myself and myself, and we'll talk about it again next week. But Gog and Magog, it's a war that is going to happen, but it's not one that happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. So what is being referred to here? It can't be literal Gog and Magog. And again, you can, you can read Ezekiel 38, 39. We'll probably spend some time on that um, next week. But how do we know it's not a literal reference? Because Gog and Magog are already destroyed. By this time, they will already have been wiped out. The phrase Gog and Magog here is very similar to saying, well, that's my Waterloo. That's my Waterloo. That, that, that's the place of my destruction. You know, Napoleon's Waterloo was that great battle, and it's referred to, even in Europe today, Waterloo. Someone will say, that's my Waterloo as the place where I'm just wiped out. I can't fight after that. And so it may be the same kind of a reference. It speaks of that final cataclysmic destruction of Satan and all who follow him. But this revelation here is mind-boggling. Because again, after that peace and prosperity of the reign of Christ, there's going to be a final rebellion. Now here's the question. Who will rebel? Connor was asking me this just a minute ago. Are we going to be capable of sin? <laughs> will I be in my glorified body and go through the millennium and then at the end of the millennium? Can I be deceived by Satan? And the answer is no. You will not be deceived. You will not be deceived. However, however mankind will. Anyone who takes part, remember, in the first resurrection, that's all believers, will be glorified for all eternity. We will belong to Christ. We'll be saved from the second death because we've taken part, part in the first resurrection. But the satanically led rebellion is made up of those who are born, who lived in the peaceful, perfect, and forced righteousness of the millennium, but who never actually accepted Jesus themselves. The young man we baptized out here just this afternoon, Eric, his decision to be baptized, he said, he said you know what, this is my decision. So I'd love for my family to be here, they're not able to be here obviously, but he said I'd love for them to be here, but it's my decision. And he said this means even more to me today to be able to say, I chose this for myself. And that's what we all have to do with Jesus. Ultimately, the decision is yours. The decision was mine to follow him, to believe in him. And amazingly, it appears that there will be those who pay lip service to the authority of Jesus. Those who live under his perfect rule. You've got to ask the question, how hard, how difficult is it to live for Jesus in the environment of the church versus in the environment of the world? Think about it. When we're gathered together, it's real easy to be a Christian, isn't it? Real easy to say, praise the Lord. It's real easy to talk about Jesus and mention this verse or that verse and talk about our Christian life. That's easy. But when we're in the world, it's a little more difficult, isn't it? Hanging with Christian friends and Christian fellowship makes Christian living a little easier. In the same way, living for Jesus without an alternative won't be too hard. For people to live and grow up in the millennium under the reign of Jesus, it's not going to be hard to believe in him. He's right there reigning and ruling out of Jerusalem. He's got all of his glorified saints who are, you know, reigning in righteousness throughout the world. And just for fun, you know, I'm hoping I'll be able to pop in and pop out and scare people. Wouldn't that be great? And you walk through walls and go, hey, I'm here. Just check it on you. <laughs> you know? I mean, it could be a lot of fun for us. But in that environment, 
In that environment, it would be very difficult for sin to happen until an alternative is available. And when Satan is released from the abyss, an alternative becomes available once again. Sin is available again. Satan's deception is out there again, and he will deceive he will deceive multiplied millions. Verse 8 says, The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And when the satanic alternative is free from the abyss, John is shown the true darkness and depravity of man's heart, which is this, even under the rule of Jesus Christ, which is perfect and precious and wonderful, people will still choose sin. Which answers the question uh, of choice. Did you know, do I choose Christ? Or is the reason, you know, someone will say, well, I don't believe in Christ because I don't see Him and all I need to do is see Him and I'll believe in Him. Not so. The reason people don't believe in Jesus is because they decide not to. Period. It's that simple. It is a choice to rebel or receive. It's that simple. It's not that I need more facts. I don't need more information. And people will throw that out. Oh, I, need, I just need to understand more. No, you don't. You need faith in Jesus. You either believe in Him or you rebel against Him and we see this. Why would God allow this to happen after this thousand years? Why is this in the plan? And why is He telling us about it ahead of time? Two reasons. Very quickly, love and grace. Love and grace. Number one, God's love because love always requires a choice. It's the only way we can know that love is truly love is when a choice is involved. How do I know that my wife loves me? Because she had other options. She did. Even up to our very marriage. I was in Europe with my family for two weeks just prior to my wedding. I came back for a week and then we got married. Cheryl hasn't let me forget that, but that's another story. So that week that we were back, I found out that the two weeks that I was away, that I was literally out of the country, there was a guy who was hitting on my soon-to-be bride. Oh, I was ticked. I came back on a Sunday night and I was standing there in church with her and this guy comes in the side door with tears in his eyes. He was messed up. Asking if he could please talk to Cheryl and for one last time he pleaded with her to give me up and, and, and he really thought they were supposed to be together and she didn't want to have anything to do with him. But she chose me. I won. We went to prom together our senior year of high school. We weren't even dating at the time. We were just friends. We went to prom together and I found out a week later she went with another guy. And it really bugged me. But I won. She chose me. How do I know Cheryl loves me? Because she chose me. Love always chooses and love always must be chosen. And God allows even those who grow up in the millennial kingdom under the perfect reign of Christ, He allows them choice. You have the opportunity now to decide, do you want to stay with me or do you want to rebel and follow Satan? And amazingly, Huge amounts of people will decide to rebel. God's love is one reason He would allow it to happen. God's grace is the other reason. Because it will be abundantly clear throughout all eternity, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that eternal salvation comes from one source and one source alone, and that is God's grace. It is not man's goodness. And we will praise God throughout all eternity for His grace. For His grace. Connor asked me, will we be able to sin? I mean, Satan chose to sin. He was an angel. Will we, once we're in our glorified state, be able to sin? The only answer I can honestly give you is I can't even see how we would want to because we will know grace. We will realize we've been saved by grace and we will want nothing other than to just be with the Lord. Sin for me, not even an option at that point. I'll be in my glorified, sinless body. I will be saved by Jesus and I will praise Him for His grace throughout all 
eternity. One of the great philosophical debates of history has been about the heart of man. Is it inherently good? Is it inherently bad? Or is it inherently indifferent? And the answer scripturally, it is inherently bad. The heart of man, and I'm sorry to tell you this, but you probably already knew it yourself, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no not one. Left to human device, we all have darkness in our hearts. It is only by the grace of God that that darkness begins to be exchanged for light and for eternity with Jesus. So love and grace, God will allow this rebellion at the end of the millennium and it will finally and completely end that debate. There's not going to be a single person in heaven saying, I did a great job and got myself here. Not a one. It will be grace and grace alone. So Satan has a role to play after the tribulation and he'll play it exactly as predicted by God. The heart of man will be seen for what it is and we will know we need a Savior, we need grace, we need Jesus. Verse 9, reading on. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, this would be Jerusalem, and fire came down from heaven, boom, and devoured them. It will be an instantaneous end to rebellion. This is not a long, drawn-out war. Satan will gather them together, and it will be over. Now watch what happens. Finally now, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. Remember, they were thrown in right after the tribulation. The beast and the false prophet, Antichrist, they don't, they don't hang around. They're not stuck in the abyss. They immediately are thrown to their eternal damnation thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The lake of the fire, uh, fire is the final destination for Satan and for anyone who rejects God. Jesus describes it both as searing fire and outer darkness. So dark, so dark that you can't even see your hand in front of your face. So dark that I believe everybody in hell will think they're the only person there. How frightening. How horrifying. And by the way, by the way, Satan is not the king of hell. He's not the boss of hell. He's not like so many jokes about Satan who's in charge as people come into hell and he's checking their names off a list. He is not the boss. Satan is thrown into hell along with Antichrist, along with the false prophet, along with anyone who rebels against God, and each and every individual person in there will be experiencing the exact same thing. There isn't any hierarchy in hell. There's only torment. Jesus said, John 3.19, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So there's an order here for entrance into the lake of fire. Antichrist and the false prophet go in first. A thousand years later, Satan himself is tossed in, where he is not the boss. And third comes the last and greatest tragedy of all human history. But this third group of people, before they are thrown into the lake of fire, will be given their fair and just day in court. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. This is the second resurrection day. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. That line, you might even want to underline, the judgment at this point is a judgment based on deeds. It is a works-based judgment. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, again, according to their deeds." 
in the midst of tragedy, because every single person who goes through this judgment, every single person will end up in the lake of fire. Everyone. So why have a judgment at all? Because God continues to be a merciful and purely just God. Everyone who rejects His grace will be given their day in court. Everyone who says no to Jesus will have opportunity to try and explain themselves and to try to say, this is why I should go into eternity. This is why I should be saved. And if you wonder where their case evidence is written down, here we see two different kinds of books. One is a set of books. The other is a single volume. You want your name written in a single volume. The book of life is the single volume. The Bible tells us if our name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, we will not be saved. That's the only place to have your name in the book of life. For if your name's there, you will be saved. How do I get my name there? Faith and grace. Believing in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That saves us. You believe in Him. You have that faith. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. But there's a set of books here. It says, books were opened. And then it says, the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. Not in the book. Not in the book of life, singular. But the things written in the books. What are these books? We could call them the books of works or the books of deeds. But in these books are written down every single thing that every single person has ever done, good or bad. It's all written down. God has kept perfect track of all of them. And the white throne judgment is a deeds-based judgment. This is the I'm a good person judgment. This is the one. Where people who say, look, I'm good. I lived a good life. They'll be able to explain that before the Father. They'll be able to say, look, I, I, I helped old ladies across the street. I kept a clean house. I balanced my checkbook. I paid my taxes. I was a good American citizen. And the Lord will say, okay, let's look at the books. And they will open up the books of deeds. What's the problem with it? Well, do you remember every deed that you've ever done? Good and bad? Do you remember all the things that your life is made up of? All of your choices and decisions over the years? And do you remember every single motive for doing good things and bad things that you ever had? Your reasoning behind what you did. It's all written down. Actually, not for you. Those pages have been ripped out. If you have faith in Jesus Christ. But for those who are outside of Christ, it has all been tracked very carefully. And with absolute perfect justice and fairness, every person has the right to be heard, the right to have their works reviewed in the light of God's righteousness, and there in the perfect white light of God's presence, human works, human excuses, and human defenses will fall woefully short. And they will have judgment. Um, I think I've shared this with you before, but my freshman year of college, I had a, a Bible test that blew me away. Do you remember me telling me telling you about this? I told you, some of you kind of looking at me with a glazed expression. <laughs> it was a Bible test that was basically set up by this professor to show us how little we knew. I got a 62 on it. My roommate on it just flipped the test over. He wrote his name on it and didn't know any answer, so he flipped it over. And on the back of it, he just wrote, "I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." So that was a brilliant answer. It was. It was a great answer. He got an F+. Plus. But, but that's the thing to know. That's the thing to present before the Lord. I know nothing of my deeds and my works, but I do know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I know Jesus. That's the name you want to claim. That's the one that saves. 
By the way, who is it that judges from the throne? It's Jesus himself. John chapter 5 verse 22 says, Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Listen to this. And all will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now wait a minute. Those who did good deeds, does that mean that our good deeds save us? Once again, read it in the entire context of Scripture. Those who did good deeds for Jesus Christ are doing them because they already have grace. So it's not the deeds that actually save us. Again, it's the grace. Have I made that point really clear? I hope so tonight. There's only one way to be saved, and that's to be part of the first resurrection, resurrected to life. Now, how do I get called up in the first resurrection of, of Jesus? Determined to know Christ and Him crucified. For it was at Calvary, at the cross, that my judgment took place. I say that over and over. I just, at that point, we've got to drill it home. My judgment day was 2,000 years ago on that dark hill of Calvary where Jesus paid it all. As the old hymn goes, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. Everything from my life, it literally should be written in the books of deeds. It's wiped out. It's wiped away. The moment my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Now we come to the last two things to be thrown into the lake of fire. The hold and the power of the most dreaded event to man will disappear forever. So go on down here, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The second death is the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Is premillennial theology too pessimistic? Well, a literal premillennial return of Christ to reign, a literal thousand year period of peace and prosperity, an unbelievable rebellion at the tail end of this reign, and a final feudal court case reviewing and judging all human deeds. Is that too pessimistic? It is if you believe in the ability of man to pull himself up by his bootstraps. However, if you regard the ability of Christ to pull us up, truly it's our living hope. We'll end with this verse. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Father, we are ready for that to be revealed. And we look forward to the calling home. And Father, I pray that if any are dismayed by all those who will be thrown into the lake of fire, that our dismay will, Father, turn into urgency. And we will continue to speak the name of Jesus. And Father, we will continue to intercede by the name of Jesus for people who don't know Him yet. And God, we pray that Your grace will be made manifest in the lives of those who don't know You. May we live to this end. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, any questions?